I'm glad you could figure out what that word in the last line was. <laughs> I, I, took, I think everyone else figured it out quicker than I did. When I was 19 or 20, I, I heard a sermon about life's difficulties and trials. And afterwards, someone helpfully asked me, how did that sermon help you? What did you make of it? And I remember responding something like, well, I can see how it could be helpful sometime, but I haven't got any difficulties or trials in my life. Oh, wish I was 19 or 20 again. That didn't last long. I don't think I need to persuade people, at least not many of us, that hearing about difficulties and struggles is relevant. You don't last long without finding out that it's relevant. So we're going to hear what God has to say to us about difficulties and troubles from Psalm 13. Would you turn again, if you've got a Bible, to Psalm 13? If you haven't got a Bible, there's loads on the shelves at the back there. Psalm 13. And we're just going to get straight into it. Because here we find David, who wrote this psalm, first of all, wrestling with his thoughts. Wrestling with his thoughts in verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? David has three troubles here in verses 1 and 2. Can you recognise them? That's a genuine question. There are three troubles here in verses 1 and 2. Can you spot his three troubles? Being forgotten. So he has trouble in relationship to God first. What else? Oh, uh, Alan, what was that? Trouble, okay, so there's trouble in relationship to himself, in his mind, with his thoughts. Relationship to God, relationship to himself in his thoughts and in relationship to enemies, to other people, yes. Let's start with the last one. The end of verse 2, his enemy is triumphing over him. Someone is against David. Someone's causing David trouble and succeeding in doing so, triumphing over him. Now, most of us probably don't think in terms of enemies. It would be very different for people in North Korea or people in parts of Iraq or Iran, but for us here, we probably don't mainly think in terms of enemies. That seems rather remote to us. But it may not be that remote. Think of it another way. His enemy here was probably Absalom. It's reckoned this psalm was probably written when David had to flee from the capital city because his enemy had triumphed over him and his enemy was Absalom and Absalom was his son. The other possibility was it was written earlier in his life when the enemy was Saul and David was on the run from King Saul who was his father-in-law. What do those two have in common? Their family. And troubles in family are probably not so remote to us. Trouble with those close to us, trouble with in-laws, dare I say. People who should be close to you and supporting you, but instead making your life difficult for you. People causing you heartache. 
who should be causing you joy. That may be very familiar and painfully far, painfully not remote. David has trouble with other people. And that gives David troubles in his mind. Verse 2. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? David's wrestling with his thoughts. He's trying to figure out what's happening. How can God allow this? How can this fit with God's plan and God's promises? How can David make sense of this? Or maybe it just doesn't make sense. Maybe just life doesn't make sense. It's just a confused mess. Nobody's really in control. And all those thoughts I had before were just wishful thinking. Can you picture David's mind spinning round? His thoughts going round and round with these ideas and driving him down. Next part of verse 2. And every day have sorrow in my heart. They aren't thoughts just going round, they're spiralling down. Verse 2 could be translated, how long must I take counsel with myself? Do you ever do this? You're taking counsel with yourself. You're just thinking your own thoughts. His mind is thinking with, is filled with his ideas because he feels alone. And who can he turn to for help? Who would understand the pressures that he's under? Who can he unburden himself to? Who can he get advice from? Well, he feels like, well, there's just no one. And so his thoughts just churn around in his mind and drive him downwards. And one of the reasons it feels like, well, there's just no one, is because it feels like God isn't even there. That's the third trouble. Well, it's the first in the psalm. It's the third one we're thinking about now. God just doesn't seem to be there. First one, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Why why doesn't God bring these troubles to an end? God had promised that David would be king. But David was probably on the run here from Absalom, or, or possibly from King Saul. His kingship anyway, whether in in either situation looks like it's just not happening. Why doesn't God take action and do what he promised? Why doesn't God answer his prayers? Why does he have no sense of God being with him? Why is there no enjoyment of praise or of praying? All these things are driving David down. Are you familiar with them, I wonder? The Hiding Place is a great true story of Corrie ten Boom, who with her family in the Netherlands... Uh, when it was occupied by the Nazis, hid Jews in their home, but were caught. And Corrie and her sister Betsy were taken off to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And there they suffered from the conditions, and there they suffered from the brutality of the guards, and there they suffered from the hard labour. But to me, the saddest part, what seemed to me to be the hardest part that got to me most was when Corrie was doubting God and pulling away from her sister Betsy and they both felt very alone because they no longer had each other to rely on. Yes, the other one was there, but the other one was keeping a distance. That break in the relationship, that coldness, that hardness between them, each feeling abandoned by the other, it seemed to me 
worse suffering than the brutality of the guards. And David is feeling it's like that between him and God. It's as if God's forgotten all about him. It's as if God's having nothing to do with him, blanking him. Well, that's David in verses 1 and 2. And that's David in the Old Testament. Can a Christian in the New Testament experience similar? Well, yes. Yes, we can. Because David was a believer, a child of God, loved by God. And so there's no reason to think David, beloved by God, could go through this and you or I could not. In fact, there's another link from David to us. We we can make the link stronger than that. The Psalms are quoted in the New Testament a lot. If you read the New Testament, which I hope you do, you'll keep on coming across quotes of the Psalms. In what way are they usually quoted? What are the Psalms usually used for in the New Testament? Anyone like to dare to answer that? To point us to Jesus. To point us to Jesus. What David says about himself in the Psalms, the New Testament usually takes as being about Jesus. So think, for example, of the day of Pentecost. Ah, Such a significant day, setting how things are going to be from that point onwards. And on that day, Peter quotes a psalm. And he says, David was a prophet writing about Jesus. And here also we have prophecy about Jesus. Absalom-like, Jesus' own disciple Judas the one who should have been so close to him, the one he'd shared his meals with, betrayed him. And his enemies triumphed over him as they nailed him to a cross. And then they laughed at him. They'd won. And so, like David, he wrestled with his thoughts. He struggled, as verse 2 says, with sorrow in his heart. Until at last he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from saving me and from the words of my groaning? Verse 1 and 2 happened to Jesus. As God hid his face from him and left him to to the torments of his enemies, triumphing over him. Now, we know that Jesus went through that for us. For you, if you're trusting him, are you? If you're trusting him, he went through that for you so that you will never be forgotten by God. No child of God is ever forgotten by God. If you're not trust, those who are not trusting the Lord Jesus one day will be abandoned forever, irreversibly. But no child of God is ever abandoned by him. But that includes David. David was a child of God. And David wasn't abandoned by God, but he certainly felt that he was. And so we, like David, can feel abandoned and forgotten. Because God can hide his face from us for a while. After all, we don't just have the scriptures David had. We have the New Testament that tells us we can grieve the Spirit. We can even quench the Spirit. 
We have the New Testament that tells us we're now going the way of the cross before the crown. It doesn't mean we're paying for our sins, only Jesus did that. But it does mean we share in his sufferings before his resurrection. Not abandoned like he was, but we can feel abandoned like he was. For a while it can seem like God's forgotten us. Now I say for a while, but what phrase is repeated in verse 1 and 2? There's a phrase keeps coming up in verses 1 and 2. How long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Do you notice that was four times? And, and in Hebrew writing, in the day before they had, days before they had caps lock or highlighter, repeating meant take notice. This is the emphasis. This has dragged on. This has gone on and on and on for David. And it can for us too. Many people have heard of John Newton. I expect many here have heard of John Newton, famous for being a slave trader, converted and turned vicar, wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace. Less well known was his friend who lived almost next door to him. I think he might have lived almost at the bottom of John Newton's garden, called William Cooper. And he was also a hymn writer. We sometimes sing his hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. But William Cooper had repeated bouts of depression. He felt himself to be totally abandoned by God for long periods of time. He was suicidal. Now that's an extreme example. I'm not saying that's normal. It's obviously not desirable. But I am saying a Christian can experience things like verses 1 and 2. That might sound like bad news, but hearing it is a help. A help to be realistic and recognise that. So that if it does happen to us, we don't think God's broken his word to me. Or, or something's gone terribly wrong and I'll just have to abandon the whole Bible if God doesn't pull me out of it quickly. David, for a long time, was wrestling with his thoughts. But he was also... Let's move on to our second thing. He was also wrestling with God. We move from wrestling with thoughts to wrestling with God. And we're going to move on to verses 3 and 4. But I want us to be careful about how we move on to verses 3 and 4. I once did a Bible study on Psalm 13, here. And I used some headings I got from someone else's sermon. And I did admit it at the time, because I don't normally pinch other people's work. I did admit I'd used someone else's headings. Because I'd heard a sermon I'd found very helpful. And the headings were, verses 1 and 2 are the testing point, verses 3 and 4 are the turning point, and verses 5 and 6 are the triumph point. Now, I, I now think that's quite unhelpful. I think that's quite unhelpful, actually. Because it sounds like you've got these troubles and turmoil in your mind and they drag on and drag on until you pray and then that's the turning point and because you've prayed, straight away you're into the triumph point. See, that, that's how it sounds, calling it the turning point. Wrestle in your mind and things drag on. Pray and, wow, bam, you're in the, you're in the triumph point. But it might not happen like that. 
Because we have to notice that David is calling to God in verses 1 and 2. He hasn't just started calling to God in verse 3 and 4. He's doing it in verses 1 and 2. He's saying to God, How long, O Lord? He's already bringing his trouble to God. But it's dragging on and on. So the message isn't, turn from wrestling with your thoughts to wrestling with God and how long will go away. That's not the message. The message is, turn from wrestling with your thoughts to wrestling with God and he will answer, but you might still be saying, how long? Because God doesn't necessarily fit our expectations for timing. The psalm is telling us, bring your troubles to God. He will listen. But it isn't giving this as a quick fix solution because God doesn't fit with our timetables. We may keep saying, how long? Now, having got that in your mind, I hope you've got that in your mind because it's really important. I remember uh, when I was younger hearing about soldiers who in the war, in the troubles, they'd heard in Sunday school, because this was the Second World War and they they were the generation who went to Sunday school, how a little talk with Jesus makes it right or right. Apparently that was the saying. And they prayed this and it didn't make it right or right. And Throw it all over, abandon it. Because sometimes we're left saying how long. But it isn't that God has failed to hear us. His timetable is different from ours. So having got that fixed in our mind, do notice the psalm is telling us to bring our troubles to God honestly. One of the things that's so good about the psalms is they are honest about how we feel. More honest with God than the glib phrases we sometimes use in church to make it sound like everything's fine, of course, and we sail through our difficulties. The Psalms are more brutally honest than that. And we can be brutally honest with God about our struggles. And we must be brutally honest with God about our struggles. I once went to Word Alive, Christian um, convention conference. It was very good. And I was pleased to see that a theologian from America, who I liked, was there. And there was going to be a question time. And you could put in your questions to him. I thought, great, I put in about five questions anonymously. And they only picked one of them. And it was this. What should be a Christian's response to doubts? That's what I wanted to ask. What should be a Christian's response to doubts? And that one was picked as one of the... Many questions he was answering. And the answer was something like, well, it depends what you're doubting. Depends on what you're doubting. For example, if you're doubting the truth of the Bible, you can look at the manuscript evidence. You can look at archaeology. You can look at, there are all sorts of things you can look at to reassure you of the truth of the Bible. I was really disappointed with that answer. Because I intentionally asked, what should be a Christian's response to doubt? Now, I think there was some help in that answer. I think it is helpful to look. Look at the history. Look at the manuscripts. Look at the evidences for the Bible. But the Christian doesn't just do that. The Christian brings his doubts to God, honestly. Yes, look at other things as well. God's given you a mind. Use it. But you must 
bring your doubts to God honestly. The Christian says things like verse 3. Verse 3. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. In other words, my troubles are driving me to the grave. I feel crushed by them. And if I tell them to other people, they'll probably have some glib cliche to say to me. But my troubles are too big for that. God, I'm, I'm hoping that you have got something better than a glib cliche. Help me. And the Christian response to wrestling in our minds with our thoughts is to, is to bring them honestly to God with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Yes, you can look at the manuscript evidence. That's helpful, good. But you do it as well as bringing your troubles to God with your eyes fixed on Jesus. That's why we read some, uh, Hebrews 12. Now, fixing your eyes on Jesus, what's that like? That could sound like a wonderful mystical experience. And that would be great if you have that. But if you're in a Psalm 13 state, you're probably not having a wonderful mystical experience of Jesus. But you can still fix your eyes on him simply by remembering truths about him. Maybe you need to get back to just the most basic things you know about Jesus. I say, I'm in such a state, there's all sorts of things I'm not sure about Jesus. And I don't know and I'm just confused. Get back to just the most basic things you know about Jesus. And that can be your way of fixing your eyes on him to help you honestly bring your troubles to God. So, let's look at Jesus again. Did Jesus pray, verse 3 and 4? Have a look at verse 3 and 4. Did Jesus pray those verses? Well, what did Jesus pray before he went to be executed? Well, he prayed various things. You can read them in the Gospels. But one of them we read in John 17. Jesus prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Wonderful prayer. The best prayers are often really short, aren't they? Wonderful prayer. Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. What was it a prayer for? The same thing as verse 3. The same thing as verse 3. A prayer that he wouldn't be left to sleep in death, but would be raised from the grave, glorified. Do you see it? What was the aim of his prayer? Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. That's the same as verse 4. Jesus is effectively praying, don't let the enemy look like he's won. He's always been trying, right from the start, to steal God's glory. Well, don't let him steal your glory by me being left in the grave and the devil triumphing. No, Father, raise me from the grave so you are glorified and it's shown that the enemy is defeated. Jesus was doing what David was doing in verse 3 and 4. He was bringing God reasons to answer. Do you see that pattern? Verse 1, David has given his, his request. How long, O Lord? He's cried out to God. In verse 3 and 4, he's now bringing God's arguments, why he should answer. Reasons to answer. 
An old preacher said that the Old Testament word for interceding, which is what David's doing here, the Old Testament word has this idea of stroking a person's face. Funny image, isn't it? Stroking a person's face. And that old preacher also said this, that he'd been at a family gathering and uh, lots of his wider family were there, there's loads of talking going on, it was all rather noisy, and his granddaughter was sitting on his lap. And his granddaughter was trying to get his attention. But he was busy talking to other people and there was a lot of noise, and his granddaughter couldn't get his attention. And can you guess what she did, sitting on his lap? You probably have put two and two together. She put her hand on his face and just stroked his face around. Granddad, listen to me. And that's the sort of thing going on here. David felt that God's face was hidden from him, he says in verse 1. And so he strokes God's face towards him. He strokes God's face round to his direction. O Lord, he says in verse 3, you are my God and I'm near breaking point. You are my God and he says, verse 4, this is a matter of your honour. Your people should be rejoicing in your promises fulfilled. Not your enemies rejoicing in your promises falling as I fall. He's stroking God's face. He's giving him reasons to take notice of him in his troubles. Can you do this? Can we do this? Yes, we can. Not just because David did. If it was just David, well, we'd think, well, maybe I can, maybe I can't. No, but because Jesus did this. And if you're trusting Jesus, you're in him. And you can stroke the face of God, bring to him the reasons why he should listen to you and your troubles, however small other people might think they are. That brings us from wrestling with thoughts and wrestling with God to thirdly, resting on God. Verses 5 and 6, resting on God. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. David has moved from near despair at the beginning to confidence at the end. Again, remember, it doesn't necessarily happen quickly and as soon as you pray but it has happened. He's got confidence God has heard him and that God will act for him. Why is he confident now? What's the reason for his confidence now? Well, it's because of instead of wrestling with his own thoughts, he's focusing on God's trustworthiness. That's the focus in verse 5, God's trustworthiness. And that's where the focus must be simple illustration of this. There's a first-time abseiler. She's on a school trip and she's standing at the top of a cliff and she's expected to abseil off it. And she's, oh dear. She looks down the cliff. Oh, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I've got it in me. I don't know if I've got the confidence. And she's frozen by inward-looking nerves. Is that the right way to approach it? No, she shouldn't be looking in, do I have the confidence? She should be looking at the rope, is that rope strong? She should be looking at the harness, is that harness secure? She should be looking at the anchor point, is the anchor point firm? And then she should remind herself, on top of all that, there's an instructor with a safety rope as well. Do you see, not looking inward, 
but looking at the things she's supposed to trust in. David doesn't here look inward, he has been doing that, but now he doesn't look inward and focus on the quality of his faith, he looks upward and focuses on the object of his faith. This is absolutely crucial for coping with difficulties, so I'll repeat it. He doesn't look inward at the quality of his faith, he looks upward at the object of his faith. Do you see it in verse 5? But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Focusing on what he's trusting in. And that means focusing on Jesus. We're back to him. Because he is the object of our faith. He proves God's unfailing love. God demonstrates his own love for us in this house. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He brings the salvation that we can rejoice in. Having given up his own son for us all, how will he not also give us, freely give us all things? He displays God's faithfulness. When it says unfailing love in verse 5, it's this faithful, it's this word that's untranslatable into English. It's got this sense of love and mercy and faithfulness. This reliable God. How do we know he's faithful? Oh, there's so much I don't understand. And there's so much I'm unsure about. And there are so many ways that my faith is so unstable and feeble. But I do know there's good reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead. Sometimes I'm just driven back to just that. I do know there's good reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead. And that proves God is faithful. And that changes everything. And so because God is faithful, because God is trustworthy, David ends with verse 6. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. The meaning of this seems to be, he says, I will sing to the Lord because a time will come when I will be able to look back and see he's been good to me. He can't necessarily see it now. But he says, I will sing to the Lord because a time is coming when I will look back and see he has been good to me. I might have to wait a long time, but it will come. And this isn't just one man's experience a long time ago. With us having no way of knowing, will this be true for us or will it not? Maybe, maybe not. No, because remember, this is all about Jesus. And as he died, Jesus said, well, what were his last words? Do you remember? Father, oh, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was, it is finished, sorry. Father, I was thinking of this. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm trusting in your unfailing love. And so he died knowing he would sing for joy because he knew that he would look back and see that God had been good to him. So verse 6 isn't just the experience of David and we hope it's a pattern for us and it might be or it might not be. No, verse 6 is the experience of Jesus. And so we know it's the experience of all who are in him. We may now have to say verse 1, How long, O Lord? 
I feel like you've forgotten me. And it's just going on and on and on. But we can also say, I will sing to the Lord. Because one day I'll look back and see, he has been good to me. Let's pray to him now. Let's pray.